0: I'd ask that you please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. And while you do, children are dismissed down to their classes. In the year 2007... I had the great privilege to attend a school in northern Italy called Saints Bible Institute. And while I was there, they did a great deal of training in a variety of evangelistic uh, uh, forms. And one of the classes that I took required that we pretended as though we had created a church plant. Uh, So part of this class was we partnered up with four students in a group, and we had to write out what we thought it would be like to plant a church in Italy over the course of two years. And we had to write down imaginary stories of what we thought would take place if we were to actually plant a church. We had to give details about how we thought it would look if we were to uh, gain uh, supporters in the United States, and if we had converts in Italy, and how that church would begin to function, and how it would begin to gather, and what it would look like for us to grow. And it's interesting to me the way that most of those stories went. You see, at the end of a week, we all had to go to the front and give our presentations about what these church plants were like. And every single one of them, except for one, had the same kind of rosy story about how their church plant would work. They would go, and they would work really hard to preach the gospel. And then, of course, what would happen? A really wealthy, highly influential individual would come to Christ and that individual would then bankroll their entire ministry for the rest of their two years. That's usually not how it works. That's often not what takes place. In fact, most of the time, missionary uh, servants go to the field. They spend years and years and years before One convert comes to Christ, and usually that person is an outcast from society, and usually that person does not have any influence, and usually that person does not have any financial capabilities to support the ongoing efforts of the church. Every one of those groups, save one, went forward and explained how they believed their church plant would work. That rarely happens. But if you were here last week, you know that's exactly what happened in Philippi. You heard Francesco preaching last Sunday about the incredible conversion of this woman, Lydia. She was a wealthy merchant who sold purple dyes and fabric. And after hearing the gospel and coming to salvation, her entire family came to know the Lord and were baptized. And this was the very first European family that we know of who ever trusted in Christ. Her home immediately became the de facto gathering place of the church in Philippi, which proved to be one of the most influential churches In the first century. But after Lydia was converted, things took a different turn. The Lord chose a very different strategy of how to build his church. Today, what we're going to see is that Jesus built his church through means that are glorious, but that Paul and Silas would have never chosen. Since we're going through a relatively long passage, we're going to break it up into three different scenes today, going through one at a time. In each of them, you're going to see Christ go forth in astounding ways. And in every case, you are going to see that Jesus is victorious in the face of opposition. Our three scenes today are going to each focus on one aspect of that. First, we'll see Satan's subversion, and then man's mistreatment, and finally, cruel conditions, and see how Jesus is victorious in every one. But before we proceed any further, let me just ask that you would join me one more time asking the Lord for His work in our hearts today. Our Father God in heaven, we come before you right now as we come before your word. We ask that we would come humbly. Help every person in this room to have an attitude that is prepared to receive, a heart that is ready to be trained by the word, a a mind that is ready to be filled, and a desire to carry out your work with their hands. Lord, I pray for all who know you that this Passage would be a deeply convicting passage where it would cause us to be reminded that in all circumstances you are good and that in all of our suffering you are working. There is not one moment of our trials that are fruitless if we are working and walking in your ways. We pray for everyone who does not know you, Lord, that they would see the gospel that is so clearly presented as. Multiple people come to Christ in this passage by hearing and believing the simple message of salvation found in Christ. We pray that in Jesus' name, Amen. Please follow along, starting in Acts chapter 16, verse 16. As we're going uh, uh, here, we see uh, Acts chapter 16, 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination Here, what do we see? That Jesus Christ is victorious, even in the face of satanic subversion. Whenever we come to an expression of the occult, whether it's in the Bible or elsewhere, it can be very difficult to know for sure what's going on. Sometimes there are legitimate, literal powers that are wielded through demonic influence. Uh, how wild is it, for example? Just imagine, think of this. If you go back to the book of Exodus, you see that there are two priests of Egypt, Jannes and Jambres, And what do they do when Moses casts down his staff and it turns into a serpent? They do the exact same thing. Human beings took an inanimate object and turned it into a living creature. You can't do that. I cannot do that. That was satanic, demonic power. Those men were able to do supernatural things as the devil worked through them. However, on other occasions, there are those who pretend to have supernatural powers in order to earn a quick buck. Consider the witch of Endor, when Saul of uh, King Saul went to her in order to discover his future. He asked her to call up the soul of Samuel, and she was an imposter who had no ability to do that. That is why when the Lord actually caused Saul, uh, Samuel's Saul to rise and speak to Saul. The witch panicked, and she cried out in a loud voice. Why? Because she's not used to this happening. Some people who claim to have supernatural powers are liars. In our passage today, we are given a clear answer as to the status of this girl. She truly and actually was demon-possessed. She actually was a fortune teller with demonic activity taking place. Interestingly enough, we're able to know a great deal about her by the language that is employed in the Greek. Now, in your English Bible, it says that this girl had, quote, a spirit of divination. In Greek, it says that she had the spirit of the python. Probably in your Bible, you'll see an asterisk, and down there at the bottom, you'll see that it says, or the spirit of the python. For those who know your ancient history and mythology well, you're probably familiar with the Oracle of Delphi. Delphi was a place that the Greeks considered to be the center of the world because there was a tectonic separation that took place there. And from that tectonic separation, there was a great chasm that went down into the earth. And from that deep cavern, hallucinogenic uh, ethylene gases would seep up. And the Greeks claimed that there was a giant serpent who used to live there that was killed by the god Apollo. Serpent being the word we use for python. It's interesting here that they built a great temple around this place to the god Apollo, and priestesses would be placed in that area. They would go near to the crevice. They would smell the fumes and then would go into a trance, and then they would tell you your future. They were said to have received their knowledge from the spirit of the python that was killed by Apollo. So what is this mythology connection doing here in our Bibles? Well, it's because Luke is telling us, he is linking this young girl to Delphi to explain how the community would have seen her. Those oracles of Delphi were considered to be the only ones in the world who could actually look down the corridors of time into the future. She had likely been a slave from the time that she was a small child, and her slaveholders would have taken her to that place, they would have placed her in those fumes, and they would have inhabited her with this demon, and then they took her back to the place where she would then in Philippi share the futures of anyone who could pay enough money. Were those oracles always filled with supernatural powers? Probably not. However, in this case, this girl had literally been filled with a demon. So what's going on with this girl? How did this demon seek to destroy the gospel message as it went forth in Philippi? You see, Paul and Silas, they were going around trying to have conversations with anybody that would listen about who Jesus is. And as they would try to have these conversations, this girl would follow them around and use surprising tactics. She's not denouncing them. She's not trying to reject them. She's approving them. She kept crying out, quote, "These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation." She's telling the truth. She's actually saying what is exactly correct. So why is Paul annoyed by this? Everything she said was literally true. What bothered him about this? Well, think about it this way. If you were to go into Ozone Park in Queens in the early 1980s to preach the gospel, and you were followed around by John Gotti, the head of the infamous infamous Gambino crime family, and he kept telling people, listen to them listen to this guy he's he's got a good message to share it would seem to everyone like you were on a team that would be problematic because the message that you share is contrary to the message that he does likewise the message that paul and silas shared was contrary to everything that this woman was all about secondly as the established person in the community one that they would have viewed as the most important spiritual person in their society. By giving her approval, it was like John Gotti saying, yes, these people have my permission and acceptance to be here. By saying, listen to them, she was putting herself in a place of authority over them. And Paul said, I have nothing to do with the spirit of the python, and I certainly do not need the permission or approval of this fortune teller, To carry out my ministry. So, Paul did not respond immediately. We don't know exactly why it was that he delayed, but my assumption, my guess here, is that he didn't know what was going on with this girl right away. He probably did not know for sure immediately that this was demonic activity. But eventually, Paul said directly to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Christ Jesus to come out of her, and it came out of her that very hour. Satan's tactic was unusual in this case. It was extremely subversive. It required great discernment and guidance of the Holy Spirit to know how to handle this situation. Thankfully, this girl was set free from her bondage to the demon. Now, I personally believe that she probably followed Christ and became part of the church, but there's no clear statement in the text that informs us that she did. Before we move any further in the text, there's a couple things I want to glean from this. First of all, Brothers and sisters, not everyone who claims to agree with the gospel is actually on our team. We need to have wisdom to partner with those who truly know and love the Lord. You see, I think what would happen if Paul and this fortune teller woman would have had a conversation were they got into the particulars of the gospel, it would have been made clear over time that there were things to which she could not submit. If he were to say things like satanic activity or fortune-telling is evil, then she could not in good conscience, and according to the demon that was empowering her, she could not agree with that. No, she would have probably at some point shown her true colors. The thing is, there are many people today, many people in the world who will say, Yes, I agree with you to whatever you say about the Lord. But not only do we look at the testimony of an individual, we also examine the life of the individual. Does their life match their words? One of the things that we see over and over in the book of 1 Timothy as we are being warned about false teachers and false prophets is the command to examine not only the fact that they are teachers of the Word, but the life behind that teacher. Not everyone who claims to be a friend of the church agrees with Christ. Secondly, I want to encourage you to never for any reason have anything to do with the occult. Sports and Tellers, Palm readers, psychics, tarot cards, Ouija boards, seances, all these things like this. they're an attempt to garner satanic power. I realize that most of the time that people come to these things, they're doing so in a half-joking manner. They're coming there as a way to have some sort of fun. But the reality behind all of these things is an attempt to go beyond the limits that God has given to us. And try to seek power that the Lord has not given to us. God has not purposed for us to know the future. God has not given us the ability to contact the dead. So don't personally take part in it. Don't engage with media that glorifies it. Don't put it in front of your kids in the form of games or television shows. Are most expressions of the occult just performance by charlatans for money? Yes. Are there genuinely, genuinely demonic things out there? Yes. In 2 Corinthians 6:14, Paul asks, or Paul says, "Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship does light have with darkness avoid the occult, have nothing to do with anything that claims to gain power from the devil? Let's move now to the second scene that we have in our text, where we see that Jesus wins in the face of man's mistreatment. Verse 19, But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, he threw them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. The slave owners of this young girl just lost their moneymaker. She can't tell fortunes anymore they have no cash flow. So they were furious that their wallet was impacted by the power that Christ displayed in Paul. Now you would think that any sane, rational person would look at this girl who they viewed to have such rich power, who had no ability to stand at the words of Paul as he said to come out. You would think that their response would think better of messing with Paul and Silas. But that's not how sinful people respond to the gospel. Instead, they lied and they created trumped-up allegations against him. They claimed that they were disturbing the city. Were they disturbing the city? Certainly not. And they also claimed that they were advocating sinful, unlawful, un-Roman customs. In fact, the only true thing that they said about Paul and Silas is that they were Jews. So how did the townsfolk respond? Did they listen carefully and thoughtfully? And did they examine the facts and then respond in an appropriate manner? Of course not. They turned into a violent mob. And the magistrates of the city, the ones whose job was to keep the peace and to avoid mob-like behavior, those magistrates had Paul and Silas stripped of their outer clothes so they could be beaten to a bloody pulp. And then... They had them thrown into prison, into an inner cell, and slapped in stocks. This would have made it incredibly uncomfortable for their bloody, swollen bodies, as they would not have the ability to move or find any position of comfort. In John chapter 15, 18 through 20, Jesus said to his disciples, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. This was not a surprise to Paul. He's the one who said back in Acts fourteen twenty-two: through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Here's the question. Is Jesus victorious when his people are persecuted? This occurrence of beatings, imprisonment, this seems so foreign to us. My assumption is that nobody in this room has ever gone through anything like this for the sake of Jesus Christ. But violence against the people of God is more widespread and prevalent and deadly today than it has ever been at any time in all of human history. Just a couple of weeks ago, November 15th, The Voice of the Martyr Ministries put out a story about a couple that was martyred all the way back in 2004 in Pakistan. They worked at a kiln, which is like a big furnace where they would make pottery. And I want to read to you the conclusion of that story. You need to know the fact that this husband and wife couple had been brutally beaten to death by a mob of angry Islamic men after they had been falsely accused of burning a Quran. Quran. Here's what it says at the end of the article. After the mob dragged Shahzad and Shama around the kiln yard, their lifeless bodies were then stuffed into the vent holes above the brick kiln oven and burned. The vicious attack had lasted for hours. Now you might ask, how in the world does something like that, how does something like that prove to be a victory for the kingdom of God? Well, the report continues. Police reported that there was no evidence of a Quran burning, and local politicians condemned the killings. 400 people were arrested and jailed for their actions that day. And a movement began in Pakistan to change the country's blasphemy laws, which have been widely used against Christians and others by anyone who has a grievance against them. Under these laws, Christians have been falsely accused of blaspheming Islam, the Quran and Muhammad, Shazad and Shama, clung to their faith in Jesus in their final moments, and their deaths were not in vain. That's where the report ends. You need to know that couple died 18 years ago, and because of their death, the laws that the violent attacks ag- that caused the violent attacks against them to be legal have now changed. One month ago, the Lord caused those slow wheels of change to start turning with their deaths. Deaths of his precious saints. Is Jesus victorious when we're persecuted? Yes. Our victory often looks like failure to the world. Consider Jesus, consider the cross. That place of suffering, that place of violence appeared to all the world. To be like the end of the Messiah's movement. In that moment, even Jesus' best friends could not see what was going on. But the cross was the greatest victory of all time. Jesus conquered sin. He conquered Satan by undergoing the most humiliating and excruciating event imaginable. His suffering resulted in our salvation. His death resulted in our life. What the world saw as failure was the victorious work of God unleashed on earth. We are all likewise called to join in sufferings and persecutions because God will continue to build His church through our suffering. If you have never experienced any persecution of any kind, even mildly for your faith, then you have either not been saved very long or you have not been living a very godly life. How can I make such a claim? Because the Word of God promises in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a promise. This extreme suffering that was experienced by Paul and Silas was not in vain. We're about to see how Jesus was building His church by purposefully placing these men in the care of a particular guard. Even though this moment was dark It was evil, and Satan seemed to be winning. The Lord was orchestrating every single detail of this for the purpose of building his kingdom. Jesus is victorious in the face of Satan's subversions. He is victorious in the face of man's mistreatment. And finally, he is victorious and faithful amid cruel conditions. Remember, Paul and Silas were now thrown into prison. Earlier this week, I was listening to an interview of a man who uh, was homeless and who was talking about the best places in America to get arrested for three months over the winter so that you can have a nice stay in prison for three months and get out of the cold. So every winter, this is what he does. He finds the nicest community in America and gets arrested for three months to sit in prison. The prisons in this time were not the kind that you would want to spend even one day in. And they were not just in the nice part of the prison, they were in the inner cell, the place where there was absolutely no air flow, there was no light coming in. Most likely when it says inner cell, it's not talking about deeper into the room, it's talking about lower into the ground. They were put in a small place, a dark place, and then they were strapped into into. Stocks, which were most likely made of wood that would have been incredibly tight and uncomfortable, which would have kept their arms and their legs separate from one another, spreading them out, making it almost impossible for them to sleep, which is why, of course, they're awake at midnight. If there was ever a time that we could imagine God being okay with someone grumbling or complaining, this was it. But look how they responded to the incredibly cruel conditions. Verse 25. cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, and he took them the same hour of the night, and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. During the midst of a sleepless night, their response was to sing. They turned their eyes heavenwards, and they declared songs of praise and worship to the Lord. Let me ask, what's more miraculous, the attitude of Paul and Silas or the miracle of the earthquake that somehow was able to loosen their bonds? Look, I lived through the earthquake that hit Queens a few years ago. I didn't even know for sure it was an earthquake. I just thought the neighbor was throwing snow on the roof of our church again. But there is very little I could imagine that could possibly happen that would cause handcuffs to come off of a person while an earthquake is taking place that is a miraculous event that everyone in the prisons doors just happened to swing open and all of their chains happened to fall off but what is more miraculous that taking place or the attitude of paul and silas just prior to that taking place it wasn't the earthquake that resulted in the salvation of the guard. It was the testimony of Paul and Silas. Not only their joy in the face of the trial, but that they, they were more concerned about the guard's life than they were about their own freedom. If they would have just kept silent for a few more moments, this man seeking to end his own life instead of being executed by his, uh, the people who were in charge of the prison, which would likely be his punishment, instead of allowing him to end his own life Paul, knowing that it would probably cost him his own freedom, said, don't harm yourself. We are all still here. This is how God built the church in Philippi. It's not the way that Paul probably expected. I'm sure this is not how he wrote it out in his mind. If he were to give that presentation at Saints Bible Institute in 2007, this is not the way he would have written the story. But instead, God allowed this man to suffer immensely, Paul and Silas, to go into this place in the prison so that this prison guard would come out and say, what must I do to be saved? That's the most important question that anyone can ever ask. I'm curious if you've ever asked that question. And if you have, have you come to the correct answer? Your salvation does not rest on a list of things that you have done or sins that you have avoided. It is not based on how good or how bad you are. It's only grounded in one thing. Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation? The Philippian jailer believed. He then took Paul and Silas back to his own house and shifted from being the guy who put them in stocks to be the one who is now doctoring their wounds. And he he and his entire family believed and were baptized. Well, how did all this happen? It happened because God intentionally allowed Paul and Silas to be in the prison that night. He allowed them to be in physical misery so that the night shift worker on duty at the prison would be in heaven along with his family. How do you respond to suffering? You lose your job. Your car breaks down. You get COVID again. You're lonely. You're alone at Christmas. Your mom dies. The doctor calls you and says it's malignant. Your friend betrays you. Your bank account is overdrawn. The pediatrician says it's cancer. How do you respond? Most of the time, our natural response begins with trying to figure out a way out of our dilemma. If I just work really hard, if I can just do what is necessary, I can fix this. And then when that fails, we move to self-pity. And then, if that goes on long enough, we fall into depression. Often when people are discouraged by their circumstances, I I point them to the verses found in Philippians chapter 4, 4 through 7. That reads, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Do you realize who Paul wrote those words to? To the Philippians, to the very people who experienced this event we are reading about in Acts chapter 16 today. This is not just some abstract, idealist, rose-colored glass message that Paul was preaching. This is not just the power of positive thinking. This was real life. Everyone in that church would have known that Paul was in that prison. They would have all heard about how Paul and Silas were singing in the midst of their pain. They would have all seen his example of what it looks like when God gives you peace That truly does surpass understanding. That kind of joy is not normal. Yet we are all commanded to pursue it. Are you experiencing cruel conditions? Are you suffering? I want to encourage you today with three final applications. What to do when you're suffering? First, when you are suffering, sing. Paul's a theologian, he's a missionary. He may have had an amazing singing voice. Honestly, more likely, it was probably terrible. It really doesn't matter, though. At this low point of suffering, Paul and Silas reached into the storehouses of their mind, and they drew on songs that they had probably sung together many times. Those songs were certainly Christ-centered. And they were in no state to come up with new things to say. They had no ability at that point to to think thoroughly through the Scriptures, but they were well-prepared. Sometimes, when you're suffering, it can be really hard to see anything except for your pain. I'm familiar with some suffering, and it seems that in the face of every trial, the Lord provides a song that turns my heart to Him and helps me remember the goodness of God in the midst of my sorrow. Earlier this year, most of you know that our family went through an incredibly difficult trial, a challenging time, and we got hit over and over and over with something unlike we had ever faced before, And every time we thought we had seen the worst of it, it only got worse. In Days of Discouragement, there was one song that came to mind over and over again. And I would find myself humming this tune in the car over and over again. I want to read to you the lyrics of this song. It says, Shall I take from your hand your blessings, yet not welcome any pain?" Shall I thank you for days of sunshine, yet grumble in days of rain? Shall I love you in times of plenty, then leave you in days of drought? Shall I trust when I reap a harvest, but when winter winds blow, then doubt? Are you good only when I prosper? Are you true only when I'm filled? Are you king only when I'm carefree and God only when I'm well? You are good when I'm poor and needy. You are true when I'm parched and dry. You still reign in the deepest valley. You're still God in the darkest night. Oh, let your will be done in me. In your love, I will abide. Oh, I long for nothing else as long as you are glorified. Oh, church, I, I love you, and I want to encourage you, and I want to strengthen you, and I want to prepare you And one of the ways that we do prepare for suffering is to sing songs like that, to sing songs like the ones we did earlier today. But please hear me when I say that if you are unable or if you are unwilling to sing out for joy in this room when we are gathered together in a place like this in the most comfortable of circumstances, then there is no way that you are going to be prepared to sing to the Lord when trials do hit. One of the great benefits of worshiping the Lord in here is that you are preparing your heart to worship the Lord out there. So sing to the Lord. Learn the words. Put the songs on your phone. Sing them obnoxiously loud in your car. When Francesco sends out the weekly worship list from Rob every week, click on it. Listen to the songs. Pay attention to the words. Hear the playlist. Come in ready to sing loudly on Sunday. The Lord is worthy of every single breath in your body. He wants you to sing songs of worship because He is worthy, but also because it's good for you. So let's sing. When you suffer, sing. Application two, when you suffer, share. One thing that we could see from this passage is that you can have accountability in your suffering. There are two men in that prison. We don't know which one of them suggested that they should sing. Maybe it was Paul. Maybe it was Silas. However, I highly doubt, I highly doubt that both of them spontaneously and simultaneously and independently decided, let's just burst into the same song. Most likely what happened is something like this. As they were lurched forward in the stocks, One of them, leaning forward, probably had blood dripping from his split lips and broken teeth, and he just started to sing a simple, familiar tune. Then soon after, the other joined in, and with every word, I bet their song became more clear and more full as they were both filled with strength in their inner man. If one of them forgets a word, the other one's right there to remind him, here's how we start the next verse. Sometimes when you're suffering, you turtle up. You sink into your shell and you want to fight the battle by yourself. You pretend that there's something glorious about that or something noble about that. When that happens, you sink farther and farther into a cycle of self-doubt and discouragement and you wallow in your pain. And instead of looking up to Christ, you just keep looking down at your circumstances all around you. God gave us fellow members of the church to help us through times like that. Paul and Silas needed the other When you are suffering, don't keep it hidden. Share your pain with somebody that you know is going to lift your eyes up to heaven. Don't just find a partner to vent to. Find somebody that is going to help you and who's going to start that song, whether literally or figuratively, and join with you as you walk through that pain together. When you suffer, share. Finally, when you suffer, submit. Here are some of the most common responses to suffering, whether people say this out loud or only in their minds. They'll ask the question, why is this happening to me? I'm better than all those other people, yet their life seems to be perfect. Their life seems to be comfortable. Why am I the one who has to deal with this? Why do I get hit with these troubles? How could God do this to me? Does God even really love me? Is God even really there? Or even worse, your mind doesn't go to God at all. You just think, I don't deserve this. I can handle this. And then you try to bury your pain in every form of entertainment and distraction you can find. Instead, when the Lord sends a trial into your life, recognize that God is in charge. It is no accident that you are in this circumstance. It was no accident that Paul and Silas were brutally beaten and thrown into prison. It is no accident when you go through trials either. Know that God is in charge. He has orchestrated and designed this because He loves you and because He is working out everything for your good. It is highly unlikely that you're ever going to know everything that God is doing. Maybe you'll see God's purpose like Paul did. Paul got to see that guard get saved. He got to see the outcome of good from his suffering. But most of the time, you're not going to see in this lifetime what God is doing. Don't be fooled. God is always doing something. He is always doing something. He has never, once, ever allowed one of his children to suffer without using that for their good and for his glory. Paul's body was badly damaged by this event. Later, when speaking to the Corinthian church about his physical suffering, he tells them in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18, "...so we do not lose heart." Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Think about the fact that his body was bruised and broken. His bones were probably in immense pain. I get a headache after just shooting free throws for a few minutes. These guys were brutally beaten for probably hours before being thrown into prison. Yes, their outer self was wasting away. It continued to waste away. These are not things that heal overnight or even in a lifetime. But his inner man was being renewed day by day. Verse 17. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. He suffered. He suffered immensely, and he says this light and momentary beating, this light momentary imprisonment, it's just a speck of dust on the scale compared to the mountain of blessing that we we will experience on the other side. Paul says that this is preparing something beyond all comparison. When you come to something like that in the Scripture. Don't just read past it quickly. Soak in that. Consider the fact that this was not just Paul running out of creativity. He wasn't just experiencing the limits of vocabulary. There is literally nothing that God himself, that the Holy Spirit could inspire him to write that would be comparable to the glory that we will experience in heaven. These are not generic blessings of heaven, as wonderful as those will be. These are specific blessings that are produced by and through your trials. How can I say that? Look again at the exact wording of 2 Corinthians 4.17. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for you. You may never see the good that is produced by your suffering in this life, but it is preparing for you something. Every time you suffer for the sake of Christ... Every time you suffer well for Christ, it is producing an eternal reward. Every time the Lord brings suffering into your life, it is always beneficial to you. So how do we respond to suffering? We submit. Not my will, but yours be done. Submit to the perfect will of God and thank Him for those things. Thank Him the circumstances that are difficult thank him in the midst of trials it's acceptable for you to say lord i hate the pain that i feel right now i am so physically or emotionally distraught but lord i love you and i know that what you are doing is for my good so even though i don't like what i'm experiencing i thank you thank you lord and i pray that you would let me see the glorious outcome of this suffering for your sake. I ask, Lord, that you would bring it to an end. But I pray that in every occasion of suffering, you would uphold me and strengthen me and help me see your goodness and your love. I thank you, Lord, both in sunshine and rain, both in comfort and pain. Amen. Let's, let's pray for this in our lives. God, I ask that every one of us in this room would have hearts like Paul and Silas did in this moment of suffering. That we would not be people of self pity. That we would not be people who are ignorant of the devil's devices, but also that we would not be ignorant of your providence and the outworking of good that you produce in us through suffering. Lord, I pray that right now, when many of us are not suffering, that you would prepare us for those days ahead when we will that this would not fall on deaf ears, but that we would be well prepared. That when we reach midnight in the stocks, that we would have a song in our heart, already prepared on our lips, that we are ready to sing in worship to you. And God, I pray that you would please spare us from suffering. But when that inevitable time comes, when we do suffer, help us to suffer well for the sake of Jesus Christ, the one who suffered well for us. We pray that in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.